Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Wine and Spirits Exhibition. The 54th edition of Vinitali was held from 10 to the 13th of April. If you missed it, don't worry. Go to vinitaliplus.com for on-demand recordings of all the sessions from the exhibition. And remember to save the date. The next edition of Vinitali will be held from the 2nd to the 5th of April 2023. everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. This week, we're joined by Pauline Vicca, co-founder and executive director of Arani Global, a research and action institute dedicated to the future of fine wine. Today, we get a sneak peek into their upcoming report, Fine Wine and the Restaurants, looking ahead after two years of global disruption. We'll talk everything from business models to staff challenges to the new relationship between consumers and hospitality. Let's get into it. Pauline Vicard, I'm so excited to have you here with me today. You're one of my very favorite people in wine and so, so smart. Well, thank you so much. It's a big pleasure to be with you today. You're also one of my favorite people in wine, so it's always such a nice moment to have a good conversation with you. So we're here talking today because you have just started presenting a report and you are about to launch a report that comes from many months worth of research that's all about the relationship between fine wine and the on-trade restaurants, role of hospitality, and what's happened in the past two years. Um, and of course, our mandate with this, po- uh, this particular podcast is business strategy and marketing. And when I had a chance to read the report prior to publication, there were a lot of things that stood out to me specific to how the fine wine world is moving forward in relationship to our gatekeepers, our hospital, and really our front lines. So that's what I wanted to talk about today. Can you give me and uh, start with an overview? What is the report? Where did it come from? What do we need to know? Yeah. So, well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share some of the some of the results. Um, the report is called Fine Wine and the Restaurants. And as you've said, it's exploring how the relationship between restaurants, chefs, sommeliers, their wine list, and the customers have changed and evolved um, around the last, over the last uh, two years. So I don't know if you remember, but we started exploring that question in April 2020. And at that time, everyone was so worried, like our restaurants are going to reopen again, and are people going to go out again? Everyone was so worried. Um, And of course, looking at the streets today, we know that they've reopened and that people are going out again, but we wanted to explore what was the shifts and what was the very big, heavy, deep trends that we see behind all of that. And we also wanted to measure how restaurants and their wine list had been economically impacted by the last two years on a quite global level. It's part of a longer like research project that we do with Bordeaux Negociant Mestreza about knowing the fine wine consumers better. So we've started that big research 
in 2019 and every year we explore a different angle. Um, so this year was the perfect year to explore what happened with restaurants after the, the two years that we haul out. Um, and when you look at fine wine in particular um, and fine wine stakeholders, for the lack of a better word, um, why it's interesting for them to look at restaurants, to look at the on-trade or you know the unlicensed or the CHR, depending on where you are and how you call it. Um, but according to the CEEV, um, uh, which is the European, um, a big European initiative on, on, on wine, restaurants, well, the on-trade sector, represents 30% of all European wine sales before, before COVID. So it's, it's a big route to market. It's a big distribution channel. Then when it comes to fine wine in particular, Restaurants have always been part of what gave a wine its fine wine status, right? When you're listed in a three Michelin star restaurant, that's your proof that you are actually a fine wine. It was kind of a passport to the fine wine status. And then one of the reasons we also chose to really focus on that question this year was because more and more wineries do have their own restaurants with the growth of tourism over the world. So they also have restaurants to think about themselves. So that was those three reasons combined that we decided to go and explore quite deeply um, about that question. So before we kind of delve into specific topics, in a, in a broad brush, were there things that you discovered that were wholly unexpected? Like, were there just those moments when you were like, holy shit, we had no idea that this was the path that the industry had taken? So maybe not like a massive, massive big surprise, but just something that, I mean, to me, hit me like, gosh, it's going to be harder and harder to be an export manager of a winery because the markets are more and more complex and more and more individuals. So, you know, when I was learning about wine exports, we're talking about big, broad markets. You were even sometimes referring like the US market or the European market. And then we had to go country by country. And now in some situation, it's like city by city. So it's, it's and, and every situation is different. And, and through COVID, there were so many ways of reacting, so many ways of adapting. And so many new business models that were developed that um, knowing your, I know it sounds, you know, um, 101 kind of marketing lessons, but knowing your market and being, having a very individual approach is more than ever necessary, I think. So you had to narrow that down for the purpose of this research. Can you just tell us where you chose to focus the research efforts. So what geographic markets? Was it geography? Was it demographics? Like, what were your parameters? So maybe, yes, on the methodology. So this, as as a lot of things we do at Arini, there's a lot of qualitative research. So that's our first step. It's like interviewing a lot of experts on the, in the trade everywhere around the world. So there's no parameter on geographics or, you know, where where they are. We had to define fine wine, of course, we had to define what a restaurants, what the restaurants we were interested in were, because of course we didn't study, you know, the big chains, the big fast food chains or stuff like that. Right? So we had to define those parameters. But otherwise, no, we the goal of that that qualitative study was to really give a voice of the different narratives that we found um, and also explain the changes. We have a bit of data and those data have been 
we've we've worked with both wine services, which is a Bordeaux-based agency and that studies restaurants in particular, and wine intelligence who study a bit more the, the consumers. Um, so they had they had their own research parameters and they they've studied um, can't six thousand and eight hundred restaurants across the world. But again, the parameter was wow. the definition of the restaurants and not where they where they were located. Um, and in what I mean, were there key markets that that you were focused on? So you were saying how it's become more granular, and it used to be that we would talk about the U.S. and European. But you know, when you do that now, are you breaking that down so that we're talking about Paris versus Germany versus London, yes. San Francisco? So, you know, like, and, and, what and does the, that look like? In the report, we talk a lot. Uh, about New York and San Francisco and Chicago, Texas and Florida to compare the U.S. market. And in even all, all those cities had a very different ways of reacting. Um, Texas and Florida, for example, ignored COVID in, in loads of ways and didn't have the same lockdown as the rest of the U.S. So, of course, the restaurants were not impacted the same way. Then we have Paris and London. We've got Switzerland, which reacted in its very own way because, of course, the access to high net worth individuals wasn't the same during COVID. There was loads of very wealthy immigration to Switzerland during COVID, so the Russians were not impacted the same way. Then we have a zone in Tokyo and Osaka in, in Japan. Um, and... At the top of my mind, I think it's there, there's a couple of more, but you will have to and read Paris. the report. <laughs> and Paris and London, yeah, yeah. of, of yeah. course, Paris and London. Okay, so there are a few things that relate to just all of us and how how we're getting by with our marketing and our consumer relationships right now that I wanted to ask about. You brought up something in this report that I had never seen before. That is this notion of the fifth food transition. I thought this was very interesting coming from a marketing perspective because it ties in so much to how we communicate our values and how we relate those back to our consumers. So sort of what is the fifth food transition? And I, I mean, very briefly, whoa, why is it fifth? What happened? One the four. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's actually, so again, when we wanted first to know how many restaurants reopen after COVID. So that's, that's, you know, quantitative data. But then we wanted to understand in what mindset their restaurant reopened with, like what were the bigger, deeper trends that were affecting restaurants, but to some extent the wine world and all of us, uh, because they're very global social um, trends. And so the the food transition, it's it's a sociology um, sociologist term uh, that explains in, through the story of mankind, the different moment in time where we change the way we feed ourselves and we access food. And because accessing food is so important to, for mankind to survive, it actually changed the way societies are organized. Um, and so the four first ones, I mean, the first one goes back uh, because it's when Homo sapiens started to use fire to cook his food. And that was the first big change that happened in 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 mankind alimentation feeding uh, then the second one yeah uh the second one when it, when it comes to food french and english sometimes don't really translate well <laughs> um mm. this the second one is when again um humanity um domesticated some plants and animals so it's you know the the stops of nomadism and they actually 
um, uh, become to be sedentary and, and dedicate themselves to that kind of agriculture. The third one is the development of big cities around the world. And at the same time, we separate the production and the distribution of food. So we start to have two very different systems, one for production, one from distribution. And the fourth one is the one we were in until the beginning of the 21st century, uh, which is the industrialization of the food process and the fact that, you know, um, um, food like wheat happened to be in, in international markets and, and, and all of that. And we produce food in an industrial way. So the four, the four first transitions were led by innovation or a discovery that really changed the way we organize ourselves in society and the way we relate to food. The fifth food transition, if you, you know, if you um, look at what socialists are, are writing, uh, it's not socialists, so, sorry, sociologists gosh, uh, <laughs> are writing, started at the beginning of the 21st century. And it's a movement that's initiated against the industrialization of food production. Um, and it's a movement which is very global, we tend to think that the change that we see in the way we feed ourselves are very led by the Occidental, very wealthy world, but it's actually a very global transition. And and even when we work with a um, French observatory of eating habits, and over the last five years, for example, it's really something that they see through all social class, for example. So it's not it's not just something for wealth wealthy occidental people it's across the board um it's the way we change the 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 way we look at how we feed ourselves and and it's the way we want to eat better um and that's the notion that we've been exploring what eating better means um in the in the, that fifth food transition so is that is that in terms of healthier or our values or affluence so or it's, access it's, like what is that it's it's all of this because as you know what eating well mean evolves through time and we we don't have the same um connection to that um so eating better today for for this fifth um food transition means first rethinking what's good that's a that's um i don't know if you heard about it that's the notion of one health that has been developed by the WHO and a whole lot of international initiative after the pandemic of 2003. So it's not new, but it's also started after the SRAS um, pandemic. Um, and that's- Right, SARS, that's, yeah. yeah. Yes, thank you. That's the notion of um, um, One Health, which is there's not the health of people, the health of animal and the health of plants is like if we all want to be healthy, it's all interconnected. So that's that was a big change in how we saw and define agriculture, not just a way of like feeding humans, but if we all want to be healthy, we had to take care of all those three things. And and our health impacts other living things' health. Then the second thing is rethinking healthy. Um, when I was growing up, rethinking healthy was like less sugar, less salt, you know, five vegetables a day. Mm. The notion that we've seen of appearing in a lot over the last three to four years is um, it works better in French because it's manger sain, manger sans. So eating a healthy, mm. eating without. So without gluten, without dairy, without anything added. But what's new and we've seen really emerging, like enhanced 
uh, through COVID is eating without pain, so without causing pain to others. Um, so it's mainly directly to animals. So no pains caused to animals because of their death, for example, because we're eating them. And no, mm-hmm. call, no pain caused to animals um, because we exploit them in the agricultural system. Um, and what I think we're going to see is the no pain to humans as well. So not only we're we going to look at where the food come from, um, how it's been produced, but are both animals and people who actually produce the food were treated well. So I, I want to kind of go off course for a minute. Of course, we've just had the issue where we've got Michelin-starred chefs converting their entire menus to vegan and vegetarianism yeah. and sort, you know, either the support or the outrage. It seems like you're either on one side of the fence or the other. Um, is this is this coming from the consumers up or is it coming from the decision makers and the stewards? So those being, you know, our, for want of a better word, I'm going to use the word influencers, but I don't mean that in a social media context. I mean, the people who in in the top level of decision-making are allowing their own value systems to come into the work that they've done and making these broad sweeping decisions about changes. Well, I think it's, it's, it's a bit of both because again, this is a big international trend. And on again, I've I've talked at the beginning of how it was difficult to define a restaurant, but the original um, definition of rest, restaurant re- restaurants uh, when they started to appear in France was actually to restore people, so to restore your house. You were going to restaurants so that you can feel better after that, and they were serving um, like different broths that we're supposed to like give you some energy and all of that. Wow. I didn't, um, I never thought about that. That was the yeah. origin of the word that uh, I learned something new today. That's amazing. And yeah. and so a lot of restaurants, people after COVID, they went back in like consciously or not to that original definition, like restaurants are a place where people can go out feeling better either because they had an amazing moment, so they are together and not to impress anymore, but also because what we've served them is good for them. And of course, the notion of what's good for you is going to be both driven by what consumers think is good for them, but also what the chef thinks is good for them. So it's a bit, it's, it's a bit of both. Um, so for a lot of restaurants that went back, that went to plant-based, for example, after COVID, some of them is really because the chefs are like, totally convinced that it's the only way forward. For some chefs, it's also a way of showcasing their knowledge because they want to push the boundaries of really creating interesting dishes through plant-based so that they can show the world it's possible. So the the different um, motivation behind plant-based for top restaurants have been slightly different. You know what I find interesting about this is that if we look at the data around, you know, what so many of us did, learned how we spent our time during lockdowns, we had a resurgence in amazing home cooking. You know, we had people at home learning how to make Negronis with Stanley Tucci. We had every cocktail glass get sold out, like all of these things that prior to the pandemic had been, well, we will just go out into the world and experience it. We had to bring that into our into our home spaces and really level up as individuals. So I can't, I mean, in my head, what I'm thinking, and I, I'm going to go out and read about this and find the research on it, is 
did our evolution at home as individuals who had been consumers of fine food and wine, fine wine, did that leveling up mean that then the restaurants themselves had to push the boundaries that much further, you know, to show like plant-based cooking, any of us who've lived with vegans know that you can have some really subpar um, at-home attempts at great vegan dishes, but you can also have in the hands of proficients and masters, amazing meals. It's just hard to learn. So, you know, I, I, I'm super curious from a marketing and, and consumer um, perspective, how much it's a back and forth cycle of what we're driving each other to learn and explore and push. So I think um, as, as, as you, as you said, um, restaurants also had to adapt because people had two years of like cooking and exploring with food themselves at home uh, with success or not, depending on who you are. And um, I think what changed I mean, one of the things we've seen um, is chefs went back to, and when I'm, again, saying chefs, I'm talking premium restaurants. So um, there's a definition in the, in the report. It's quite extensive, but I'm not I'm not talking all restaurants that here. Um, sure. But without, you know, denying the importance of technical know-how, which is still very important, um, they... They went back to opening the restaurants with a, a need for more emotion and an intuitive approach as well. It's all part of, I guess, one of my main takeaway from the report when it came to what are one of the biggest trends that we see at the reopening is, is a complete redefinition of excellence and what excellence means. And to me, it's very valid for restaurants, but it's also very valid for fine wine. Because again, fine dining, fine wine, they all share the same roots. They have the same origin. They you know, they were they they grow together in 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 some ways, even on a language point of view. Mm. Um, and you can replace in, in loads of the analysis in the report. You can replace fine dining by fine wine, and you will have you know exactly the same lessons. But that shift from intellectualism and really thinking through, which which always been one one of the sign of excellence. Like if you want to push the boundaries, you have to think about it. And you have to be very technical about what you do. Not not going back away from that totally, but just, okay, technique, it's not the only thing that matters. We have to have emotion and we have to gather and not simply impress. That was one of the big, one of the big takeaways. And it goes back also from the second thing is from elite to popular in some way. If you look again, if you look at the mm. language of uh, grand restaurant, grand vin high cuisine like good gastronomy it's always the same language like there's that was the idea of rising above of being higher than other people so by nature exclusive because there was everyone and then there was the fine the the high like the 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 better that was striving also that 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 notion of um of again rising above and being better than the rest of the crowd and i think this is is also shifting to something a bit more popular, okay? We don't want to think we're better than everyone else because, again, people have cooked during COVID and they've learned things. And so we just want to um, accept everyone and post something a bit more down to earth as an approach. Uh, that was one of the big shifts that we've seen. And, and if you look at the final... Now, now, hold on. 
hold on. I'm I'm going to completely interrupt on this. Yeah. I know we've talked about that. I, I mean, this is so conflicted. We are internally conflicted yeah. about this, right? Because look, honestly, there are a lot of things that we do do better than everyone else. You know, yeah. we are there. We are fine in ways that some of our counterparts are not. So, I mean, I think this comes back to the question that there's no good answer for. Uh, how do we be inclusive and both exclusive at the same time? You know, so again, is it, it's, at, at it's, this point, I mean, well, well hold on, hold on. At, at this point, are we just looking at, oh, we're just like you, but we're more expensive? Like, how do we message this? How do we convey I think excellence. I think, I think it's mostly a change in attitude because again, the chefs or the, the or even the fine wine makers, they're not suddenly going to drop techniques because again, that's one of the reasons for the excellence and because they really have a developed sets of skills and know-how and and loads of other things. I've got a quote uh, that maybe I can read to you that I think some sums up this quite well, but it says. And you can, again, change fine dining with fine wine, but the fine dining restaurants have for too long considered that the guests were lucky to get in to access to their art and cuisine. COVID has helped many chefs realize that the cuisine matters, but it is nothing without the guests. It seems obvious, but it changed the perspective of many that are now reopening with the aim to provide high-purpose and light service and make each guest the real star of the show. So I think... To your point, mm-hmm. they might cook the same thing, the same dish, but in their approach, it's not like come in because I'm a superstar chef and I'm going to impress you. And like, it's right. like coming because my cuisine is interesting and I want you to discover it. And I want you to have a, an amazing experience with my cuisine. So I think it's just a shift in, in a change in balance and again, a change of attitude. You can be very... So you can be very confident about your cuisine. Again, you can you can do exclusive things in a way that you're cooking expensive things. So it's the, so the meal is going to be expensive, but it's just the process of going in and accessing it that could be different. And the importance that it will be given to people that eat the food compared to the importance of people that make the food. And in wine, it's a bit of the same way. But it can also be about the service, right? And how you present the food. Maybe you can cook exactly the same thing, but you don't present it the same way with like half an hour long description of of like Swedish fermentation and those different plants. So maybe that's the same. Like maybe you don't change your technique that much is the way you you interact with it. We had an interview uh, with uh, Ferran Santeles, who was the head sommelier mm-hmm. for El Bulli before it closed and now works for El Bulli Foundation. And we talked about rethinking hospitality because that that's also something when we think about the notion of excellence that that's changed a lot. Like, how do you receive people? How do you host people? And he said, we have to stop like quoting facts and, you know, just stating information because either the, the guest doesn't care or if he cares, he can just Google it. That's one of the things that has changed also. Like mm-hmm. people have all the information they want on their phone and he says, my role as a sommelier, and I think it's the same for a waiter, my role is not to describe what you're going to drink. My role, if I'm pouring you the wine, that wine needs to taste better for you. So my role is to enhance your olfactory pleasure 
not not just to give you fact that you can just Google in like two seconds. Um, and he gave a really good example of that. It was like, I can come with a bottle of wine and tell you, this is your, your high grand reserva. It's been aged like two years in American oak. It's a Tempranillo grape, uh, which has, I'm going to, I didn't revise, so like, like very dark skin and, and soft tannins. You walk tannins, in tech right? sheet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. walk in tech sheet. But if you go to the to the table and you're like, this is a Grand Reserva Yorja, and to my opinion, this is the best that Spain can offer at the moment. It, it's so Spanish, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to approach the wine with with a, with a totally different perspective on that. And so to your point about, again, excellence, do we cook different things? Do we change? Like, does fine wine restaurants suddenly start just serving ratatouille and beurre bourguignon and fish and shit? Maybe not. I mean, they, they will still have to propose something quite unique and probably very technical about how they cook. But the way we present it, the way we welcome the guests, the way we um, even, again, services will, will change. And it's already changing um, to some extent. This is something, so um, I want to come back to the wine, but I do want to say this is something that we're seeing across luxury brands as well, yeah. right? That there is an effort to have offshoot second labels representation that is more inclusive to new audiences across channels as well, but also this heavy, heavy focus on the customer experience. Um, yeah. We've certainly done interviews here. I know you've done research as well around how essential that has been for luxury to redefine itself across, you know, across what is really just a very noisy market. Um, I want to go back to the wine thing, though, because I think that what you're saying, if we just replace dining with wine, I think that it's going to get pushback. I think it's going to be challenging. We live, um, you know, we work in an industry where there's such this push toward if I just educate them, if I tell them all the things, uh, you know, on the text sheet, if I explain why this is important. And, um, I, you know, I'm just sitting here wondering, how are we going to get our producers to adopt that? Well, I think that to some extent, some of them, and again, it's very difficult to generalize when we talk about fine wine because it's it's a big market. There's loads of different actors. But as you were saying, it's a noisy and crowded market and there's more and more fine wine produced every day for you know, the pleasure of all of us customers all around the world. But it makes some wines more and more difficulties to sell. Um, so I think when you have, you mentioned influencers, but I'll, I'll say like important leading voices that do ask mm-hmm. again and again about different narratives. Um, if and, and those are conversations that we have even on, on the teaching and learning process. Um, when, because I think it's going to, to happen, when the big teaching institution also change what they require from sommeliers or, or people working on the floor and, and keep the facts because they're important, but also start adding, again, service, experience, that type of different communication. And of course, it's going to change as well. I mean, it will be, it will be slow, but I'm sure, I'm sure the clever estates will see that if they come up in the market with a different story than the rest of their competition, they will have better results, right? If they start talking about different things than just stating facts. Facts are still very important. And if I can just use this 
facts are super important. And please, winemakers, have a tech sheet, which is up to date, which is easily accessible, because we still need this. But that might not be what we want to tell the customer. <laughs> right, right. I, I think, though, that you hit the nail on the head with one word there. Clever. Yeah, clever wine estates are not only going to be doing this, yeah. they are already doing this. Yes. And, and yeah. I think that there is this element of, you know, we're we're preaching to the converted. Like when we go out with this kind of research, a lot of times the first people who are going to read it are the ones who fall into that category yeah. of progressive, clever, interested, willing to adopt things. I think that where, um, where I see having the big challenge are the small, overwhelmed, extremely talented, well then, but just not, you know, well the, then rely, for them rely. to adapt communication is bizarre, is, is difficult. Well, then you can rely on your intermediaries and middlemen. I mean, the middlemen are not sometimes understated and under-considered in, in, in the world of wine, but you probably work with importers and distributors or agents, depending on how you come into the market. Those are the people that, are, that should be here to help you as well. And again, because middlemen are more and more questioned for their role and their place on the supply chain, because we all want to go direct in some, some aspect, when you can't go direct and when you're not for loads of very, very good reasons or, or val- valid reasons, just ask more of your middlemen. Like it's, it's their role as well to give you this, to, to, to be here for you and to advise you on this in, in some ways. Um, and, and to some extent, I mean, not, not to quote Mestreza too much, the, the negotiant uh, from the Place de Bordeaux that we did the research with, but that was their main purpose. They wanted to do more for the estate they represent. So they needed to understand the market better so that they can be that kind of um, relais to bridge that gap. Um, and I think, again, for intermediaries, that's going to be a big um, differentiation point. One of the things that I find super interesting about this is that we work with a handful of distributors. We work with a lot of wineries. And the winery-distributor relationship is or can be very challenging, especially when you are going through, for instance, you know, the importing into America where those yeah. distributors have huge portfolios, you know, out yeah. of sight, out of mind, that kind of thing. Anyway, what I'm thinking is you've got, you know, you've got Mesreza who's doing this. I did a panel yesterday for Vinamark in South Africa who are doing amazing yeah. work to, you know, really improve the knowledge and experience of their, um, of their wineries. This is a space that clever members of that distribution change can, a chain, excuse me, can yeah. really distinguish themselves and uh, reestablish what their value to the the whole system is. Um, so maybe instead of talking to the wineries with this, we need to be talking to our distro, to our gatekeepers, to all of those people who sit between the producer and the consumer. And there could be, I know, well, you you know me, I'm always a big, I like collective approach. I like group approach. And I know it's not, but there's... Oh, you French woman. Yeah. <laughs> but there, there are very good examples. When, when you say winery, I, I might go a bit off track, but I'd like to quote them here if they allow me. The Taurus families 
are doing many things that are very interesting in the world of wine, but they have a project that's called the Seven Wonders. And so they work with seven estates, but like small estate next to them in, in DOs that are less known, <clears throat> like Monsanto, and you'll know them because they're close to you. Um, and what they do with those seven estates is they open the routes to market to them. So it's not just a support on winemaking. It's a support on distribution. And it's a support on, okay, you could go there in this market. This is who we work with. And we think you're interested enough to be in that market as well. Because for them, it's 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 a long-term sustainability plan because they understand they can't be fine on their own. So the more they push those estates, that by having good distribution system, by having stories and narratives that are fitting those markets, then they can sell more expensive. And, and again, it's creating that virtual circle. Yeah, 100%. They're, so, I mean, they're, by, lifting, by lifting the perceived value of an entire region, they're allowing all of them to reach more and ultimately make more money. I mean, that, that's brilliant. It's the, same, it's the same principle as, you know, in real estate, there used to be a thing around developers. You go in, you buy one yeah. house, but then you buy the third house yeah. down from it on each side and then the third house down from that. And in doing so, you're lifting the value. Uh, of you know, the you go streets. in, you redo yeah. them, you're lifting the value of the street. Yeah. Um, uh, but, that but back, is fascinating. And, and back on your point on language and, you know, I'm a small winery. I don't have time. I don't know marketing. I don't believe in marketing sometimes because you also um, hear that. Yeah. You you can have, again, it's, it's, it's finding support in different ways because we know winemakers can't do everything. Um, but it doesn't mean that their job is not more and more complex and they have so many different skills to achieve. Either you have them yourself or you find support. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, we all talk about that one now. I yeah. kind of want to jump from that to... There were some things that I noticed, again, standing out. The um, the business models are changing. And then, of course, we're dealing with, especially in America, the Great Resignation, which is producing tons of issues for clients that we work with. So what did you, what did you find in this research around adaptive business models and how we are dealing with a shifting labor force? So when it comes to business models, I can talk more precisely on the business model of the wine lists and maybe not on the restaurant establishment Great. side. Yep. Um, so what we've seen, because we also wondered when restaurants reopened, did they reopen with longer, smaller wine lists than before, with more expensive wine, less expensive wines? So those are the quantitative data that you'll find you know, in, in the report on several markets. So you can compare and basically, market reacted, of course, differently depending on the situation they were at. And there's the US on one side, London and Paris on the other side, and then Switzerland and, and Japan. Those are interesting like differences to, to see how the wine lists have evolved. And then we wanted to know also what was the buying strategy of the sommeliers and how they adapted it. And we've seen three major changes. One was like totally changing direction, right? So is the chef that wanted to be that wanted to get stars like they wanted to be a Michelin star restaurant and they were chasing mm. the star and then suddenly they abandoned the idea. So by abandoning this idea, by totally redirecting again the vision to be a restaurant that restore, for example, uh, they cut the price by fifty percent because they were not going to do the same for the same reasons. So the wine list aligned. Um, then there are people that we think 
resort, sorry, their, their margins. There's more and more people that have worked for the most expensive part of the wine list, which is where fine wine stands usually. They stopped, you know, applying percentages. They applied an absolute margin, which allowed them to decrease the price of those wines. But, I mean, it was also because they had to. I mean, again, one of the big changes for those restaurants was the absence of tourists and the fact that they had to deal with local population that usually, at least in Europe, are not willing to pay the same price as European uh, international mm. tourists. And then, and then the last thing that we've seen is people that slightly decrease the price of their main wine menu, but they've raised the price of the buy the glass program. So either because, you know, more and more uh, fine wine restaurants are working with a set menus because they can no longer do a la carte because that is sure. too expensive. Mm-hmm. So you have a set menus, you buy in advance, so you pay in advance as a ticket for a concert, and then you go and you've got the set menus. They can't really change the price of that set menus because it's like taking people hostages, like they have to pay more to come. But wine is always seen mm. as an option so that they can increase the price of by the glass. So, you know, out of the seven wines that they were pairing with the food, maybe they've changed three that allows them to keep the same price but have more margin. Or they like develop two options, one with the more accessible wine menus and one with the more premium really for people to have choice, but still still make quite a lot of money using that generating cash with wine as well. Um, right. So you always have to be careful as well when you talk about changing wine lists and how people buy, because you don't change, usually you don't change your strategy overnight because you have stock. So you can't suddenly say, I'm going to totally change because you still have those 300 bottles to sell. So um, unless you are, you are operating with very, very, very small stock, which is not the case of most restaurants. Um, wow, that's super interesting. And and I mean, again, I'm just thinking about what a good lesson that is for anyone who's listening, because margins are, oh my God, they're always our biggest challenge, right? Yeah. So that's a great takeaway, Pauline. Hi, Paul. <laughs> um, Okay, so then what about the staffing issues? Did this yes. come up? Because I'm oh, yes, hearing this course. all the friggin' time. Yeah, and and if you look at it philosophically, it's it's the same at both ends of, of wine production. So viticulture has problem finding staff and restaurants have problem finding mm. staff. So the people working in the vineyard and the people standing on their feet to pour the wines are difficult difficult to find. Um so yes, it's it's a huge problem. We had Michelin star restaurant that operated with brigades of like eight sommeliers. They reopened with one, um, all those 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 kind of things. And wow. they also those who reopened with people sometimes. But again, a very big diversity of situation, right? Depending on where you are, were you able to pay your staff through COVID because you were supported by your government, or mm. you know, did your staff came back to their original countries and didn't come back? So that that was a big movement as well. Um, but yeah, across the board, all the sommeliers, all the wine directors that I spoke to are actually implementing um, education program in, of some form in their restaurants because the people that they've restarted with also sometimes are starting with a low, like not a lot of experience because they just come to mm-hmm. hospitality and because you're a, a premium restaurant, you need premium services. So you need to make those people evolved in a quite rapid and quick way. And again, we've seen right. three different strategies and usually they are all mixed together. 
The first one is how to diversify skills. So there's not that many restaurants that reopen with like, okay, we're still going to have very, very different skill sets for each of our mm-hmm. staff. Like everyone needs to know how to do a bit of everything. Because even if you find staff, they can have COVID and they can be in lockdown for two weeks. So you need everyone to be able to catch up with their teammates if their teammates are not coming to work. Um, so developing a bit of that. Then, of course, there was you know, talks about flexibility and raise. Again, that was really important in some countries. So giving people better work condition so that they would accept to come back. And then the last one was also on top of, you know, salaries, what people want to find is a sense of purpose and a sense of evolution. So when to recruit people, not only you need them to be paid decently, you also need to give them a horizon, like an idea of how they could grow um, on, mm. on your restaurant. And that's also something that we've seen develop, develop like a totally different human resources plan for, for, for the staff. And I think that, you know, restaurant um, wineries um, can help in this, um, in this as well. I have to quote Jane Hansen and the program that she's putting together um, uh, about, you know, hosting in Bordeaux, sommeliers from Her all around. Her mentor week. Yeah, the mentor yeah. week. And getting sommeliers from all around the world in Bordeaux to experience, you know, the the, the different chateaus uh, firsthand and learn how, you know, and, and, and see the wineries, see, see the vineyard and, and, of course, taste taste some of the wines that they might not have access to before. This is a great this is a great initiative because then you have people coming back with so much knowledge and 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 not only you've been a mentor but now they're also an ambassador um, and then they can quickly acquire new skill sets. Um, yeah, I, I think to be fair, this is probably a much. I mean, this is probably several podcasts worth yeah. of information talking about the labor stuff because sort of for everything you say, I'm thinking about oh, but we have the challenges of, you know, extremely niche education that we're seeing right now. We've got a proliferation of very well-educated, but wine-specific potential hirees. And, you know, what does that mean? Like, if we're asking people to change midstream when they, you know, I look at you as, you know, future MW and the amount of work that you've done to have this incredible but very specific amount of knowledge. And then to say, that's great that you have this knowledge, but we also need someone who can, you know, fit into all of these other requirements. I just, um, I, I, I worry for both sides of the, of that discussion. So if I can just say, um, um, if I can use the the podcast as a platform as well, because I know you're quite listened in, in Italy and, and, and in Europe. Uh, when we stay on the staff thing, as you know, there's loads of migration happening in Europe at the moment with mm. Ukrainian coming to Europe and being received. It's always a moment that us in the wine world and also in the restaurant world, we need to be careful of because it's always a moment where there's abuse of people and then illegal work mm. and then bad condition of employment. And when you, it's all a line, like immigration coming to a country, people really need people to work in both the vineyards and in the restaurants. So if you're a winery or if you're a restaurant owner, just be careful on how the people that you are going to employ are going to be recruited just so that they're treated well, because we've seen that happening in other moments when we had those big waves of of population. Uh, Sorry, that was a bit of an off 
no, of, a, no, of an off-topic it, it, thing. It's but, true. Um, and, and of course, social sustainability is a factor that's yeah. coming up time and time again. I, I'm sitting in today on, on two panels that are both bringing up social yeah. sustainability. So we're talking about this a lot more. Um, but, so but to, to, I your know point, to your point, two points about education, I don't think we have to learn more. I think we have to learn differently. There are some part. I mean, I'm, I'm discussing this with the ASI quite often. Like, do we still need to learn the 13 communes that are allowed to produce Colida? I can't even remember the Italian mm-hmm. name. I'm sorry, uh, DOC. Maybe we don't need to learn that by heart because, again, Google knows. Maybe we need to shift a bit what we require as as knowledge. Um, and and same thing. I mean, the MW is a bit of a different beast because it's so broad. But I still mm-hmm. think there are some missing parts of in the MW when it comes to you know alcohol and health, for example. I mean, there's there's loads of different things that we could that we could change and adapt, and also sure. the requirement of the different certification around the world. Yeah, no, no, I, I I agree with you on that. Just from a comms and marketing standpoint, that all of these people have so much power to affect what the consumers think of us and our products and what we yeah. do, and honestly, to hear them just spouting the technical details kind of makes my heart break. Um, I did an interview with a young woman named Diva Giles uh, a couple months ago, and she was talking about in her wine bar how she encourages stories, but it there's no wine degree. So the story might be the server's personal experience with that bottle, but that that is a human narrative that we can all latch on to. Whereas when we get into sort of like, you know, the information overload, it just doesn't sit in our brains, or at least not for most of us. So that's um, that's, yeah. that's a very good point. We also had that quote um, on when we were talking about excellence in hospitality and service. And we have loads of people that say it's the time for the individual wait, like waiter or, or sommelier. There's more space for them to show their personality today than they mm. were 15 years ago. So maybe if you have staff um, and you're not going to change totally the way they were trained, as you say, midway, maybe they can keep their very technical knowledge. But you, the, your requirement is like go and pour the wine and tell the, tell the people why you love it and, and why why you personally think it's a good choice. Um, and that, that and let simple... them know that it's okay to do that. Because I think yeah. a lot of them think I've been hired for this particular purpose and do I have the agency to actually yes. be myself in the space and to share my stories. And it's not all about just production and, and you know, details. Yeah. So that notion of letting them know that they have, agency you hire well you trust your people you give them voice yeah. yeah um so i know that we're coming to the end of our time just talk to me very quickly what what happens next so you've done all of this research was there anything that we can take away uh kind of for the next steps of the consumer relationship or the restaurant on trade fine wine uh market um what's next for that study or? what's next for yeah so like if we look at it were there things that the consumers are saying to us now that the world is reopening are oh. they getting out into the world for tourism are they wanting to order online you know do they want more more zoom events they want, what's important to the customers they want everything <laughs> they want everything yeah oh, well, interesting. well again it's it's um 
it's a more and more complex um, word. And as, as you know better than me, and there's not one thing as the consumer. There's the consumers with many, many different varieties of behaviors. Uh, but I think what we've seen, which is, again, a big trend through consumers' expectation, is the need to be more engaged. Again, it's to to be part of something. So be part of like uh, a relationship when you go to the restaurants. Be part of um, a, a restaurant. Like really engage with with what they're doing. Why they would go out and have a meal because they want to be part of something. They want to support um, companies that they believe in and restaurants that they believe in. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's again we've talked about consumers engagement for years now, but I think it's it's a really global trend that people want to be engaged. Um, then people are at very different stage of their mental health recovery as well, which is something mm-hmm. as marketers we need to be careful and aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, some people had like came back with um, like a happier mindset. Like some people are like, yay. And some people are like, okay, I'm still very, very yeah. affected. So I think this is, again, there's not one answer. Just be careful of the mental health of your consumers. And I think even your own mental health, because we are all at very, I think very that's really, step. we sell alcohol. Like I, I yeah. think that we always have to yeah. sort of bear that in mind where, where we are at a given point in time. Okay. So this report is not yet public, but it's about to be. Yep. Um, if people want to access this report, when does it come out and how do they get it? So I don't think I've talked about this, but this this report is published through um, Arini Global, which is a research institute dedicated to the future of fine wine. How we work is we've got six forces of change that we study on a very global, um, uh, maybe funnel approach. How's the world is changing? How it's impacting fine wine? What can we do about it? That's how we organize the research. Um, so to find anything about us and the, because this is just one part of what we study, we study many, many other things. So you can head to the website. There's loads of things that are public. Um, 80% of what we do is public, the article, the podcast, some of the publications, some of the events. Um, the next one is on what cooperative can bring to the future of fine wine. That's going to be an interesting conversation as well. Um, and if you want to access all of the report in, including this one you can become a member and and support our research that way and then you can get access to everything that we do and you can get access to all the events and like the, the think tank that we do and the roundtables where we have meaningful conversation about the future of fine wine i hope that was clear that was that's <laughs> awesome yeah so go online go to yeah. your rainy global or go to your social media accounts subscribe yeah. i know that you've got a pretty regular newsletter subscribe yes. and that's the best that's probably the best way yeah. to stay informed in your inbox is that we've, right yes we've got three more publication coming up this this year one on sustainability and trying to look at different angles of sustainability that maybe less talked about at the moment um and we've got because we haven't talked about that, but what is fine wine and what does it include and what, you know, what does it take to be fine? And all again, that notion of excellence and how it's changing. Um, so we're publishing a, a white paper every other year. And so we'll be um, launching the fourth edition of that white paper by the end of the year as well. So if you're interested in all those conversations as well, you can join us. We've got loads of conversation platforms. 
and we're Excellent. interested in hearing from you as well. So and and you're just very personable, and you answer all of our silly <laughs> questions on Twitter, which we love you for that. Um, <laughs> Pauline, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. I know that you are presenting this set of data and reporting almost daily this week. So to have you share it with us, I'm I'm so grateful for that. And I'm going to let you go be free now to use that big brain of yours for more MW studies and research. And thank you so much. Thanks so much, Bonnie. It was a pleasure being with you. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us today. And a very special thank you to Pauline Bicard for being willing to come in, talk with us about some of these findings before the report is even live. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali International Wine and Spirits Exhibition, the biggest drinks trade fair in the world. Save the date, the next edition of Vinitali will be held the 2nd through the 5th of April 2023. Remember to subscribe to Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find us at italianwinepodcast.com. Cin cin! I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.